I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War One. Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The nineteen sixteen. To the Franco-Dutch War of sixteen seventy-two. This is When Diplomacy Fails remastered. History friends, and welcome to another collaboration episode. A collaboration episode with a twist, because unlike all of the other collabs, this one was not done through Skype. This one was literally done one-on-one in person. Was it intimidating? Was it different? Sure. I mean, I had to grow, I had to kind of stretch and meet this guy one-on-one and talk to him as if I'm talking to a normal person, which is somewhat challenging. I also had to worry about all the usual technical things in person, which I could normally hide if it's from Skype. But yeah, he had a coffee from an exclusive When Diplomacy Fails mug. He shared a macaroon with me, and we had a great conversation. Who is this guy? Who on earth is Turtle Bunbury? If you haven't heard of him, if you have heard of him, then you must be pretty excited right now to hear a conversation with yours truly and Turtle Bunbury. But if you don't know who he is... Turtle Bunbury is one of Ireland's most renowned historians and genealogists. He's appeared on everything from RTE, which is Ireland's state broadcaster, to the BBC, which obviously needs no introduction, to radio programs, documentaries, all sorts of things. He has his own projects going. He's an accomplished author and, as I said, genealogist. And he also happens to be a stand-up guy who really helped me out by coming on this podcast. I really hope to use him. Well, that sounds bad, but I really hope to take advantage. That also sounds really bad. I hope to, how do I say it, channel his expertise. There we go, that sounds far better. I hope to channel Turtle Bunbury's expertise 
and, well, help him help me to make history thrive. Because, yeah, that's what we're all about. And that's what Turtle Bunbury's all about. By the way, if you're wondering about his name, we address that in the episode. To those of you who haven't heard of Turtle Bunbury, you're in for a treat. And to those of you that have, well, you're in for a treat too. I know they say don't meet your heroes, but hey, if you're a fan of Turtle Bunbury, you'll be happy to know that he's a pretty good guy. He's a history friend, just like me. Just like you, because you're listening to this podcast. And you're listening to this exclusive interview with Turtle Bunbury. Because we're running wild, guys. This is five weeks to run wild. This is When Diplomacy Fails' his fifth birthday, and I'm so glad to have you all here for it. This is just an example of the kind of thing we are doing here at When Diplomacy Fails. That's really a big reason why I was so excited to present this to you guys for so long. Not just this episode, but or even this collaboration episode, but all the other ones that go along with it. That kind of distinguish this project from so many others that have come before. Taken Alone, it's an incredible interview. We talk about loads of different things from why studying history is important to why, well, people should study history and not abandon it in school to his plans for history, to his plans for being an author, to his experiences and being a freelance historian. He's a great guy and he gives us some great advice and I hope you'll let him know what you thought by going to his website, turtlebunbury.com or I hope you'll go and find him and let him know what you thought at turtlebunbury on Twitter and find him on Facebook as well like his historical page. That's basically just replacing the H from historical with a W. So go and do that. Go and support him. Go and tell him you enjoyed his presence on this podcast because he's doing great service to us, guys. He really is. I mean, those of you who have never heard of him probably don't realize what a solid he did for me. So I really, really appreciate it. He is, as they say, in some terrible sectors of this world, a good skin. And I really appreciate what he did. So thanks for listening, guys. And I hope you enjoy it too. Alrighty, the next voices you hear are myself and the one and only Turtle Bunbury. Okay, history friends, back on the podcast and I have a very special guest today. I am joined by Ireland's finest, Mr. Turtle Bunbury. How's it going, Turtle? Good day, Zach. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. How are we? Uh, we are very good uh, on a on a gorgeous day. It has to be said. Mm, very very nice day. Very nice. We got we got some things to cover. I kind of want to go through. Well, it's kind of hard to define this episode in a way. I mean, we're going to look at everything from why is history important to why you love history so much to kind of why we all should love history so much. So yeah, I think we'll just kind of get get right into it. I think one of the questions I would have. Straight away, because people who, maybe people who don't know you or who haven't heard of you, I think the thing they would probably think instantly, and you've probably gotten this before, is where does the name Turtle come from? And as, as someone who whose surname is Twomley, and I often get asked about it, I feel like as as people who have names that people might question, we can kind of... Uh, I, yes, we can relate <laughs> yeah. to one another, Zach Twomley, yeah. that is true. Yeah, uh, yeah it is... Um, Turtle Bunbury, it, I forget how weird it is sometimes um, <laughs> when, uh, when running along with it, especially as I'm now a 45-year-old historian mm. trying to be taken seriously. It is, uh, you know, and it has its own strange stories, but you have asked nicely, so I'll tell you the, uh, <laughs> the, the, the real one is oh, basically... Um, my father was uh, something of a Latin boffin, oh, okay. and I am the third son. 
And as a child, I would come uh, crawling in to, or crawling around the house after mm. my two older brothers, and he would count us into the room, Primus Secundus, and here comes Tertius. Ah. Um, and uh, I know that sounds uh, very uh, uber pretentious in its own funny way, but um, <laughs> it was uh, it just my, my brother started calling me Turtle, and then it uh, stuck, and I was never, I tried to shake it off as a teenager. Yeah. Uh, and it never happened, and okay. so eventually I said, oh, well, to hell with it, I'll stick with it. Okay, yeah, nice. No, that's good. That's actually got a nice story behind it, because uh, my mom was like, um, whatever you do, make sure you ask him where a turtle, because she just, she's just so curious, and like I was curious as well, and uh, no, it's nice to know that, because as as someone who kind of has an unusual name, sometimes it is a help, because you don't forget, like, you're not going to forget Turtle Bunbury, so mm. in that way, in that way, it's good, really. That is, yes, I suppose that is a benefit, and certainly if you're trying to, you know, put books out there and all the rest yeah. of it, that is a, that is a benefit. <laughs> um, there are alternative stories doing the rounds that I can turn my head 360 degrees, <laughs> that I was conceived in the Galapagos and all sorts of things. But, uh, yeah, anyway. yeah. Well, it's good to see that you are coming out of your shell, and I, I just had to get in there, yeah, sorry, indeed, sorry about exactly. that. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, speaking of names as well, Bunbury itself, I mean, that's got a fascinating history behind it, doesn't it? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the Bunbury uh, family claim, and I think we all have to be a little bit dubious about family claims, but mm. we claim to descend from a guy who, a French guy called Baron de Saint-Pierre, <laughs> uh, who came over to, uh, with William the Conqueror to fight at the Battle of Hastings. Right. And was given land in a place called Boniface's Borough in <laughs> Cheshire. Mm. Um, and for which uh, he, his son became the Lord of Boniface's Borough, and then over a couple of generations, it changed from Bonnie's, Boniface's Borough to Bonnie Borough to Bonneborough to, Bun- to Bunbury, <laughs> and that's where that came from. Nice. And then they were very good at picking up wealthy uh, brides uh, mm. for a few uh, generations, which definitely helps. And there was a guy called Roger Bunbury or De Bunbury, who was a, a marshal in the Black Prince's army, and another guy. Richard uh, de Bunbury, who uh, fought, well, he was, in, he was meant to fight at Agincourt, mm. but uh, he brilliantly pulled a sickie that morning, <laughs> which I think is a very skillful thing yes, to do. Yes, very good. And, and had he gone out there, he'd probably been munched. Um, yeah. I wouldn't be here boring your, your listeners uh, 800 <laughs> years later, whatever. Um, so that was, so they basically were based in Cheshire for a long time, and mm. then they were, at the time of the English Civil War, they, well, actually, there was a guy here during the Elizabethan age who was down in Lismore Castle. He was tied oh, up with that in the 1580s, um, which is a pretty fascinating era for me. Hmm. And then in the 1650s, um, Sir Harry Bunbury was uh, a supporter of Charles I, okay. uh, for which he was flung in prison and had his house burned down and all his lands ravished. Right. Uh, and he, um, his children legged it. Oh, okay. One, one to Virginia and the other to Ireland. Oh, right. And so I'm from the Irish ah, descendants. Did he get to keep his head in the end? He kept his head, which oh, is an unusual thing. That is unusual days, then, yeah. They weren't very fond of letting people No, his first cousin lost... His first cousin was in... in um, what is he? Sir John Aston, was it? Who was up at uh, Drogheda. Okay. Who was clubbed to death with his own leg, famously, up to the end of the siege. Wow, so, okay. So, yeah, hardcore. Yeah, they, mm. didn't, they didn't hold back back then. Right. Um, did your kind of, because it sounds like you would have looked into that a good bit, did kind of researching your own family's history, like, give you a good basis from which to think, hey, I enjoy doing this, I might do this for other people kind of thing? Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think learning, you know, getting to grips with your own family history, obviously I was incredibly, incredibly lucky having a, a backstory that goes back mm. that far, but it just, it puts, um, the sort of generations in context and it means, 
I think when you study any family history, you mm-hmm. go back in time and you, you don't know where you're going to end up because yeah. maybe your great-great-grandfather did you know this job or served in the army or served sure. in the civil service or whatever. But maybe his brother emigrated to Brazil or mm. served in a polar exploration or, yeah. or emigrated to Tennessee. Yeah. You don't know. So you end up going down those journeys and mm. those routes, uh, the unpredictable. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Family history, I think, is an incredibly good way to um, get started because it, it, it's in a way more accurate than just focusing in on a war or an event. Yeah, yeah, because you actually have to find the people kind of thing. Yeah, and you also to... have to, to look at how what age the people were when these events happened. So mm. one of my ancestors was born in 1800, and so you're able to say, right, well, he was 15 with the Battle of Waterloo, mm. you know, he was 29 when Catholic emancipation came into Ireland. Yes, yeah. You know, and it puts it in context. Okay, cool, yeah. It's good to, it's good to be able to look at it like that, but I mean... Did you always have an interest in history? Like, can, was there? Can you remember back to a time when you thought, "I really like history. I think I want to pursue this kind of thing." Uh, pretty earliest memories. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, as a kid, I was hooked on uh, scripture stories, which arguably are, you know, a foundation of history. Yeah. Sorts. Uh, I loved all those tales, but uh, unfortunately, I, I lacked one of the important um, things to become a, a clergyman, which is uh, a certain amount of belief. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but uh, I uh, then, you know, had. Good history teachers at school, which is absolutely vital. Oh, absolutely, um, yeah. So important. And then growing up in a historic house surrounded by portraits and, and items and mm, furniture and mm. things and lots and lots of books, um, that totally sowed it in me. So, yeah, I have been a, a proper historical bore since I was about uh, three years <laughs> old, I think. Oh, that's good. It's good, it's good to have a, a foundation in it. I think from my experience, when I first realised that I really, really wanted to learn and like study history in more detail... Probably for like the leaving cert where I had to write like the history exam and it's very kind of time sensitive. But being Zach, I decided to just gush about all I knew. And then when I got out of the exam, it was then I kind of realized, you know, I I feel like I have a lot to say. And and maybe maybe pursuing this at a different level would be good because then I wouldn't be constrained by all these uh, all these time, all these time limits. Examination papers. Yes, yeah. And then, of course, I started a podcast and I haven't shut up about history since. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, so, into the world. Exactly, exactly. I mean, maybe just talk a little bit about your your career kind of as, as a historian, as a, as a historian, as a kind of genealogist kind of thing. You're, in terms of just like workloads, you've produced, is it 13 books now? Um, yes, uh, the new book is, I think, the 13th uh, wow. of, of those books. I did quite mm. a lot of um, privately commissioned books as well, which was okay. a slightly different ball game. Yes, yeah, so I, uh, after um, school and all that malarkey, mm. I uh, went to Trinity College in Dublin mm. to read law initially and hated it. Um, <laughs> and then um, uh, we fell out with each other, me and law, and I uh, <laughs> changed uh, direction. And actually, a friend of mine said, well, I don't see why you're not studying history. So I, anyway, I moved to the history department at sure. Trinity. Yeah. And to my great joy, I suddenly found myself discovering, you know, learning about Ireland and the age of the Vikings and the yeah. Tudors and all this stuff. Loved it yeah. in heaven. Um, but I still didn't think I was going to become a historian at that mm. stage. And uh, I probably enjoyed myself you know, at, at college more than, uh, you know, I wasn't a brilliant student, I wouldn't have said. Right. I then went off for a few years and became a travel writer. And mm. I lived in Hong Kong for um, just under three years and mm. came back and moved back into uh, history then um, on various fields, as you mentioned, doing genealogy. So I started doing uh, family histories for, mm. for specific families. 
um, and then a project called Vanishing Ireland as well, which is yes, I saw a few of them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, so that was something a, lo- a lovely project that basically involves travelling the length and breadth of Ireland uh, with a great buddy of mine, a, a brilliant photographer called, called uh, James Fennell, and we were tracking down old timers in their eighties, oh, nineties, yeah, hundreds. Yeah. Um, and interviewing them for, you know, spend maybe an hour or two hours with each one. And James would get a brilliant photograph. And I'd ask them about their life stories and also about, you know, what their, I suppose, inherited oral tradition was mm-hmm. from the generations before. Yeah. Which would sometimes bring you back to the 18th century. It was wow. Nuts. Yeah. Um, but a lovely project to work on. Yeah. And I figure, like, one of the things I'd love to do and the reason why I love doing interviews like this and I'd love to do more in the future is because if you get people who have been around longer, they're such a great resource. Like, I mean, all, all okay, like read a book and that kind of thing. But sometimes the personal accounts, like you just can't beat them. Do you find that, do you find that it kind of really gives you a window into the era that you wouldn't have had otherwise? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the latest book I did was called 1847, a chronicle of genius, generosity, and savagery. Um, which, uh, is set against the backdrop for, for in Ireland, of course, it was Black 47, the worst year of the Irish family. Yeah. But when talking to the old timers for the Vanishing Ireland project, it was amazing how many of them, their grandparents were uh, children, if not teenagers, at the time of the famine in yeah. the 1840s. It's mad. So suddenly you're that close to, you know, the, the events mm. from the past. I can't remember what it is. I, I think it's uh, two 85-year-olds ago. Is that right? To, to, yeah, two 85-year-olds yeah. ago brings you to 1847. So wow. we're really close to that. You know, go three 85-year-olds and you're, you know, it's the French Revolution. Yeah. Yeah, underway. Yeah. You know, so <laughs> it, it, history is a really funny in, mm. in that sense. Mm. Um, and, uh, yeah, definitely hearing it firsthand from people is very rich. Absolutely, yeah. And I think it's fair to say that, judging from your back catalogue, I mean, we talked about Vanishing Ireland and stuff, would you say that Irish history is maybe not your forte, but your kind of preferred realm? Um, I think, I mean, it certainly, obviously, it has been up till now. I've I've strongly focused on that. But uh, even with the the most recent book, 1847, I wrote quite a few chapters that had nothing to do with Ireland mm. at all, including the story of a, a warlord from Kazakhstan wow. um, and the Comanches of Texas and, and, and various other <clears throat> stories in, set in St. Petersburg. Um, because I think that we are, you know, it's a, it's a really lovely aspect of being a historian mm. is you can actually, it's like being a travel writer, which I was for a while. Yeah, You can go to places anywhere yeah. and, and, and delve deep. I mean, you go back into the, the you know, the, the Franco-Dutch war, yeah. or, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's not, you know, the landscape is roughly mm. the same, the mm. town names are the same, but sure. most everything else is, is, is completely different. Yeah. And yet you can sort of put yourself in there and get a, get a feel for it. Mm. And I think that is the same with, uh, with that. And it's really exciting to go to these other countries, you know, to talk about Bernardo O'Higgins in Chile, <laughs> which I've also been enjoying researching a little bit lately. You know, which is, uh, I haven't even been to Chile. Mm. Now, I wouldn't pretend, you know, I think you miss out on a lot of the nuances, of course, as if you did live in Chile and yeah. talked to Chilean people, you're mm. going to get a much broader picture. Mm. But uh, no, I think the, uh, I'm, I'm interested in history full stop. Yeah. It doesn't well, have to be strictly Irish. Oh, good, good. Because I find sometimes with, I mean, we know like the kind of more famous, well, not more famous, but like, I think, I suppose, renowned. I mean, like the likes of Dermot Ferreter, for example, on, who's on RTE an awful lot. Uh, so he he would be kind of seen as like an Irish historian. But I don't know. I think for me as well, I would always 
I think there's just so much value in looking at as many kind of different parts of history as possible. So, And I was never able to tie my own interests down anyway. So even if I wanted to just look at Irish history or even just Louis XIV's era, for example, literally impossible for me to do so because I don't know about you, but I mean, whenever I look into things in the podcast, I'm always thinking okay, I can definitely cover that next time kind of thing. Is that is that is that true with you? Say, like, you you mentioned some chapters that you did for 1847. Would they kind of propel you onto those eras to maybe look at them, say, more more detail for another book, perhaps? or um, Possibly. I mean, there's tangents uh, galore to be had, yeah. uh, which I, I do uh, love. And yes, I kind of have, you know, gone back in time, in fact, uh, I have an interest in the 1740s, um, you know, and seeing what was going on in the world and that. Mm. Not sure if I'll do a book on it yet, but mm. I might. I'm building sort of, you know, the stories into that. Um, <clears throat> because, yeah, I think the, the knock-on effect from an event. So, mm. you know, that the 1740s is the time of the Jacobites, of sure. the Gin Wars, mm. uh, which I think are absolutely fascinating. <laughs> area, and uh, Handel's Messiah and stuff. So you've yeah. got a lot of, you know, very colourful tales mm. going on. And, but the knock-on effect of, you know, how that impacts everything right up to American and French revolutions and indeed Irish, uh, sure. you know, the, the United Irishmen. Um, you know, mm. as you uh, have definitely uh, worked out, there are always long-term causes and short-term causes. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> and I think as well, like, even the 1740s, like, Frederick the Great was running around then. I mean, like, he, like, there was wars going on in the continent that Britain was getting involved in, not getting involved in, like... Prussia was expanding, Poland was declining, all like all sorts of stuff are going on. So, yeah, I think there's I think my problem almost is that I've never been able to define myself as a specific historian. I'm just kind of like I like history, leave me alone kind of thing. But uh with we mentioned like books and that kind of thing, but I mean you have a few other side projects going on as well. I mean, you have historical is that that's 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 correct way to pronounce that it, is the correct way to pronounce it yeah, yeah. historical which is a, a sort of still slightly fledgling project but it was um a bit like uh, when diplomacy fails it's trying to look at ways of um bringing the historical you know to a broader audience sure. through different means and different mm. ways so historical was the idea i wanted uh, to create an app that would tell people the history of where they are standing oh wow um, but um it is a uh, big massive project of to engage in yeah. and uh, you then try and work out the financial returns on it which uh, <laughs> tend to be fairly dwindling yeah um, so it has a facebook uh, you know presence um which i uh, monitor and uh, update fairly regularly mm, um, mm. but you know that was that was one side of things but i do think it's important to as a historian i think it's very important to try and keep on top of you know the futuristic ways yeah. that technology can try and help yeah absolutely and i think that's <clears> why the reason why I love podcasting is because it's not quite like... I mean, like with books, like, and not to say podcasting doesn't take a lot of effort or time or anything like that, but you can be fairly you can be fairly current. Like, if something comes up, you can address it. Or if something comes to your mind, it's easier to release a half-hour podcast than it is to, like, do a whole book. So I think, yes. like, the likes of, like, using social media, with which, which is what Rhetorical is on. So it's just very handy to be able to make use of, well, technology, really. I mean... You must be able to like admit like with with the likes of podcasting and, and being able to use social media, it's just so handy to be able to bring history to people in ways that say like even ten years ago wasn't really even One, possible. Absolutely, and and it gets you know well beyond the confines of your locality as yeah. well. Yeah. 
So a lot of uh, with historical and there's a Vanishing Island Facebook page as well, and a lot of the followers for them would be uh, from. I mean, a huge number, forty, fifty percent are from the US, for instance, and they both have I think twenty, twenty two thousand followers. You know, so there's quite, mm. quite a sizable chunk of people. Yeah, there's a lot of people. Yeah, I think when diplomacy fails, it's been set at like two thousand two hundred likes for like <laughs> a good while now. So oh, we'll bump it up. Yes, we will, yeah. won't we? Yes, indeed. I mean, it's not. You're not literally not tied down by uh, by things you may or may not have produced I mean we have we've talked about historical we've talked about your books and stuff but you're very active just like literally producing things I believe you were in Cork relatively recently were you? Yes I've just uh, literally just opened a, an exhibition down there uh, last month um, which was uh, it's called A City uh, by the Sea mm. and it is a, a maritime history of Cork Harbour and Port and the River Lee mm. uh, all the way out to Cove Queenstown that was wow um, and yeah so that is and it's a you know it's because it's one of the, the world's biggest natural harbours and there's immense amounts of history mm. going back into of the people stuck up sort of uh, <laughs> you know uh, stone circles and yeah, so forth that are yeah. around and about um, but particularly for the last four or five hundred years it's uh, very rich and even this year they are gearing up to mark um, well, the, the 1917, the US entry into the war. Yeah. Um, and how Cork Harbour became the main, one of the main bases for the US Navy. Yeah, yeah. And when they were launching their systems to try and uh, get rid of the German U-boats and yes, all that malarkey. Yeah. So there is masses uh, going on down, uh, down in Cork City. Yeah, it's mm, a very interesting mm. project. Okay, well, what what kind of drew you? Like, I, I'm always interested to find out, like, what draws you into certain kind of topics. I mean, you're not obviously not from Cork, but I mean, you kind of did that just kind of come up, and you thought that'd be interesting to look into more. Or um, well, there are there are networks um, of of people that you start meeting when you you know. I, I basically, as a freelance historian, and mm-hmm. I have at any one moment, I have about forty bulls in the air. Yes, yeah. uh, thirty eight <laughs> of them will fall flat on the ground. Right, right. One of them's still up there, and maybe you catch one. Um, and uh, that was, you know, that was basically how that came about. It mm. was, uh, I know that they're they're having a big push to try and push um, the connection between Cork Harbour and Cork City. Sure, there's a little distance, it's sort of eight miles between them. Um, and uh, I, I was down there about four or five years ago doing a historical report on it. Mm. Um, and then this church, St Peter's Church in Cork said that they wanted to do an exhibition and I said well I'm your man <laughs> and uh, luckily it was all uh, lovely great it worked out nicely great okay and do you, I mean, you mentioned they're a freelance historian and I think for many people who study history or who want to study history I think if academia isn't what they go into they like the idea of becoming a freelance historian but obviously it's very difficult because there's all sorts of things. I mean, like you really have to promote yourself, don't you? Essentially, it is blatant self-promotion. Yeah, which helps if you need to change your name too. Yeah, <laughs> to have a Bunbury or, yeah. or something of that nature. Um, anyway, it is yes. It, you 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 have to. I mean, it is. I think it's really lovely, interesting, very varied life. Mm. It is difficult to find. Uh, Massive remuneration mm. um, uh, in the early stages. Maybe where you and I, Zach, will be very hopeful that that doesn't stay the case <laughs> yeah. for yeah. our lifetime. But, Absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, no, it is. It is very interesting. There's you know no two days are the same. Mm. Um, but I think you have to you have to explore every medium. You mm. need to you know yes, of course, be looking at all the online availabilities. You've got to try and figure out whether TV is the world for you, whether mm. radio uh, is the world. Um, I ran a history festival for uh, three years down in Carlo, um, which is 
terrific uh, event, um, mm. very time-consuming, yeah. but actually it put me in contact with a lot of uh, the leading historians in Ireland, Brilliant. actually quite a few from the UK and, mm. and other places, um, which was extremely interesting project uh, yeah. from myself. For myself. Um, and then you, you know, I take tours, I give talks, I write books, I do a lot of mm. articles for newspapers. Um, I think you've just got to do, you know, everything yeah. to keep going because you never know which one of those is actually... Very, very true yeah and Anna, Anna always my, my wife well my wife by the time people are listening to this but she always says that I have a brass neck it's the expression because I'm constantly like putting myself out there like one example that she was horrified I went to a bookshop in Wexford and within talking to the lady behind the counter in the space of about 10 minutes I'd already given her a key ring and a pen and <laughs> told her all about the <laughs> quite right that's what we must do yeah yeah, yeah. I mean we like uh, I think the medium or even the discipline of history, it depends on... But I think that's maybe that's what puts people off the idea of... And I think we'll come back to this, but academia in history is very closed off. So when people want to do a future, they want, they're thinking of a career in history, they think, well, if I'm not the kind of personable guy who can really put myself out there, or maybe I'm too kind of self-conscious or embarrassed. But I, I used to think that way, but the remarkable thing is I just kind of... It was like I became 25 and then suddenly I didn't have any shame anymore or something. It was mad. But uh, yeah, so th- thankfully it's uh, it's not something that bothers me. And I think the more that I've done podcasting, the more I've kind of been able to see myself, not necessarily as an independent or freelance historian because I'm not like taking work and I work for the leprosy mission anyway. So, but I don't know. I think what, what like maybe just what is your opinion kind of on podcasts for the for the discipline of history? Do you think... I mean, hopefully you think they're a good thing, I would imagine, yeah. <laughs> I, you are, uh, be glad to know, I think they're a very good thing. Yeah, I, and what's more, I, I really think that they are the way people are, are going, mm. um, 100%. Um, I know lots of people who do lots of long drives around Ireland now who look forward to the drives <laughs> because they can listen to a podcast of mm. their chosen subject. And, and these happen to be friends of mine who enjoy history, so yeah. they're going online listening to, you know, History, yeah, um, yeah, which is uh, you know a very uh, extraordinary time we live in, where we can actually choose what you want to live in, uh, li- listen to during Isn't the long it? journey, yeah, um, and you know, and it, so so from that perspective, the podcasts are great, and then you've also got the the, the other side, the smaller, shorter things, which uh, my daughters who are eight and nine and their generation are definitely going to be interested in, which is one. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which 
is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Long history lessons. <laughs> <laughs> but they'll listen, they'll watch it. Yeah. Uh, and you can maybe start, you know, hooking them in, mm. reading them in that way. Mm. Um, so, yeah, technology, you gotta you got to work with it and make it your tool. But I, I think podcasts definitely are the yeah. way to go. Yeah, big time. Oh, I feel the same way. But, I mean, with, with being a freelance historian, is your independence very important to you in the sense that you don't really have to uh, answer to anyone except maybe, like, say, the tax man or something? <laughs> um, I think, um, and one of the things I learned, and I hope I'm uh, doing much better at it than I think, you, I think you do have to answer to somebody. You have to answer to credibility. Mm. And that means that you have to, you can't put something out there that is turns out to be baloney. Of course. Because then you are shot. Yeah. Uh, and certainly in my early days when I was sort of starting out and I was kind of moving from travel writer to historian, I probably fell for, uh, you know, a few stories and legends mm. and thinking that they were true. Uh, and then actually, funny enough, I did quite a lot of, yeah, well, feature writing for newspapers where they would hire me to, you know, write up this story and then you go and investigate and you discover that it didn't happen. Yeah, um, yeah. But anyway, the point is that, uh, yeah, I think you have to be very, um, you know, you have to just check your sources mm. and, and state your sources and, and know where you're coming from on that front. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, would you ever feel tempted to enter into academia? Could you picture yourself giving lectures to people in that kind of sense? Yeah, I mean, I do, I do a little bit of lecturing, but I mean, that's mainly sort of genealogy classes down in UCC every now and then in Cork. Mm. Uh, and, and at the University of Limerick I have as well um, but I, I actually am definitely interested in um, going to a, a, an American university I'm talking to one at the moment just for uh, a couple of semesters mm. uh, to go over there with my wife and daughters and just enjoy mm. a bit of uh, the you know, US life and, and if they'll have me and uh, give some lectures in yeah. the Irish studies department oh brilliant um, to do yeah I think you know a little bit of that definitely mm. Mm. Um, and uh We'll, we'll see how it works. Oh, Academia. Good. I don't know if they'll have me. So I, wasn't, I wasn't a great academic when I was at college, but I'm, <laughs> I'm trying harder. Yeah. I think a lot of the times as well, another thing that I find interesting, it's almost like the lines, bet- like it's not really the case anymore that uh, in order to be an academic, you have to be like wear a strange jumper, surround yourself with dusty books and be kind of very not like not very inspiring to people. I think that kind of era has ended. It seems now, not even just with TV, like we have historians on TV and we have people who are like in the public eye more. And I think people will listen to, I don't want to call them popular historians because I know that they are qualified, Mm. but I don't, 
think that there's as much of a kind of, oh, you didn't go to Cambridge or Oxford to get your first class PhD, so therefore you can't you can't tell me what what's what in history kind of thing. Do you do you think that's that that's that's accurate, or do you think maybe history uh, maybe history as a discipline kind of needs more people with big giant degrees? Is that... No, I think I th- I mean I, I spent a year studying history at the University of Groningen in, in the Netherlands. Oh yeah, I pronounced um, that wrong about 500 times. Oh, it's a tricky one, <laughs> yeah. it's a tricky one. Um, but there was a, a wonderful um, uh, lecture there from uh, Virginia, mm. UVA I think he was, called Edward Ayres and I remember him coming in and just blowing me away with his presentation yeah. skills and you know, he just had us all hooked, mesmerised, mm. we wanted to stay in that room for you know seven mm. hours straight listening mm. to him uh, and I think that has to be you know, because I'm afraid the converse was true with some of my other lecturers, mm. where you know you just didn't even really want to go because yeah. it's just going to be an uncomfortable bed. Yeah, exactly. For the next uh, hour. So I think that is absolutely key um, mm. to uh, keeping people interested. And you know, I've in history, as far as I can work, I cannot ever understand how it could be boring mm. because you are playing with everything that's ever happened of course all yeah. the people that have ever lived in all the countries and all the romance and drama and tragedy and, and, and everything absolutely so it should and especially in this day and age I, I would have thought with um, you know the, the possibilities of creating really stirring slideshows bringing it all to life with visual imagery as well yeah. for lecturers um, yeah it should be a very exciting time mm. to be a history student yeah I would think so as well I think the, the problem is I mean, with this, there's a certain stigma attached to history. Like in my experience in UCD, I think there was about 500 history students in my class. And then it wasn't until I did the master's when there was like 30 people that I felt like I was surrounded by more, kind of like more like-minded uh, people. And even then I was the biggest nerd in the class. But I mean, like... <laughs> Surely not, Zach. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, I think I said the bar for nerdism very high, but the what I suppose what my question kind of is is, I don't know. Do you think that when people look at history, they might think, oh, there's no kind of career there? And do you think that there's, if if say you're not going to become an academic and you're not you're not the kind of person who could really see themselves as a freelance historian, is there much else that is like is there much reason to do a history degree if you're not necessarily going to use it in your career really? Um. You know, I I know plenty of people who studied history and didn't take it on. I mm. mean, I didn't even mean to take it on myself. You know, I thought I was going to go down a different career line. Yeah. Um, but uh, yes, I think it just, I think it's really grounding. Mm. Um, it could be argued that you don't need to spend three, four years grounding yourself at a university. Mm. You know, maybe you'd be better off getting on with, you know, learning some practical money earning skill. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, I think uh, it is, you know, if you, if you uh, apply yourself and chose the right direction at of the courses available sure um i think it is an attractive thing to employers yes mm. a good history degree yeah yeah i i like to think so now as well but um i like you do hear kind of like oh they're doing arts kind of thing i mean there's i like you never hear oh they're doing medicine it's almost like like with with an arts degree it's almost like not that they look down on it but that maybe they kind of they don't see it. They don't see the important parts of it. I think maybe just because so many people at one stage in this country were doing arts degrees. So it was almost like the market was saturated hmm. with people who had done arts degrees. And like within that, all sorts of different subjects. But yeah, I think history gets a, an unfair representation sometimes because there's an awful lot in it that people don't think to look at because 
all they think of is the the people with the history degrees that never do it and then kind of just leave it by the wayside so yeah yes well i mean i have my two little daughters who've um already said that they want to be artists when they grow up. <laughs> like, okay, sure, you don't want to be chartered accountants yeah. or something. Like and my yeah. uh, eldest daughter has recently said she wants to be an artist and a historian. So yeah. there you go. We're, oh, well, that's we're, good. Uh, uh, in danger for another generation. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, say, say someone was to say to you, Turtle Bunbury, I really want to be a historian. What what should I do? I mean, would what what kind of advice would you give them? Say one piece of really important advice. What would that be? I think it really is what I said earlier is just uh, tackle every aspect of um, of how you present it uh, through the through the social history through the TV radio. Mm. Do you want to write a book? Uh, and and you've got to balance it up a bit. Like writing books is actually not a very lucrative sport, but mm-hmm. what it does is it gets your name out there that maybe might uh, get you a talk. Absolutely, uh, yeah. Might in turn get you a television appearance. Mm. Which, you know, they all sort of feed into each other a bit. So I think. Don't by no means constrain yourself to one medium. Yeah, sure. Yeah, no, that that doesn't make sense. You're you're very involved with lots of historians, and you said you had contacts and and kind of with with different Irish historians. Do you feel like what what kind of things do you feel like historians could do to reach out to more people and kind of get them interested? Maybe destroy the stigma attached to history that an unfortunate amount of people have that it is boring, even though we know it's not. Do you think that there's a way that people could? as historians reach out to kind of the the, the civilians that, that aren't necessarily interested and kind of hook them? Um, I think what I was trying to do at the History Festival, um, which I literally, uh, the only reason I stopped it was because it was so time-consuming mm. uh, and I was involved in other projects. Um, but, I, you know, hopefully somebody else will uh, run a History Festival. Who knows? Yeah, maybe, who knows? Maybe yourself. Yeah. I think there is one coming down in West Cork this uh, summer, actually. Okay. Um, but that was, I, I basically was uh, got together... The academia. So mm. I had a, a number of uh, brilliant academics who came down. I had some of the uh, wonderful uh, history uh, guys from me- media, like uh, Miles Dungan from the History Show, and yeah. uh, Patrick Gagan from Talking History on mm. Newstalk, brought these guys down. Then the local history groups, mm. because they are two sort of conflicting groups. Yes. Where quite often they don't, you know, see eye to eye. Yeah. They just see each other a bit. Yeah, they do. But the local historians sometimes have the most amazing details of knowledge mm. uh, for the academics mm-hmm. and vice versa. The yeah. academics sometimes can authenticate what the local historians have said. So they need to meet a little bit more. And then the History Teachers Association also came down because they have been very concerned about the fate of history on the, on the curriculum. Yes, yeah. Um, which obviously is an endangered subject here in Ireland, which mm. um, is uh, shocking and uh, definitely should not be. Whatever about studying at a university, I would be... You know, fairly uh, hard on history being very important to people until the age of, uh, you know, until you're 15, 16 at the, at the least. I know, so. yeah. Now, people have heard this, that they listen to the episodes in order for the, for the fifth year birthday. I don't know if they do or not, but I actually released an episode on why history is important. And one of the big things was, I mean, people always say, oh, history is important because it teaches you critical learning skills. And my whole thing is, yes, that's true. But it also roots us in the world that we're in and it teaches us well like where we came from obviously and that's there's huge value in that and i think when people look at the likes of history and they say oh let's just get rid of it from the curriculum and they have this kind of utilitarian view of what every subject is supposed to instill in you i think it removes a lot of the value of your education because if you're not getting if you're not getting stories and and life lessons from people that came before us i mean you said that you'd be very much against removing history from the curriculum but 
would is that the kind of argument you would use or would you use a kind of a different one no i think i think that's it i think it's just building you know the the structure from which you can actually analyze the past to try Mm. and give you a sense of you know what decades past or centuries past mean and why the 12th century is different to the 18th century yeah these are things that you actually if you don't study history Mm. you might not just simply might not get yeah Um, Yeah. and considering we all you know walk through buildings and streets and towns uh, that were built during these centuries you Mm. need to kind of know the background i would add to that that obviously with every i was talking to an english girl the other day who's very apologetic that she'd never learned irish history at school (laughs) um but you know i would say in ireland we you know you don't necessarily learn English history. Or you, you don't, learn, really. Um, empire history or even in Cork. Yeah. Uh, for instance, when I was doing that project down there, you wouldn't necessarily know that Cork uh, you know, made a lot of money on the back of the slave trade mm. for a long period of time because that's you know, unpalatable and yeah. doesn't fit the picture. <laughs> uh, nor does the thousands and tens of thousands of Irish who prospered as part of the British Empire and the colonial service yeah. and so forth. Mm. It doesn't necessarily fit the narrative yeah. that... The Ministry of Education would, you know, like the Department of Education would like you to, you know, yeah, follow. yeah, and like along the same line as that. I mean, we recently had the centenary of the nineteen sixteen rising. Well, actually, it was like a year ago now. But I was very annoyed at the way it was presented because you didn't, you rarely got both sides. You mostly got it presented as a, a kind of a glorious event. I mean, you've written books on the nineteen sixteen rising yourself, so. Mm. I mean, do you have any opinions on the way it was presented? Or do you think... I mean, certain parts of it, I feel, were done well, but I feel like they didn't give enough enough dialogue to both sides. Um, I was actually thought it was quite balanced, I have to say. I mean, yes, probably, in, inevitably, it was going to be more mm. <laughs> in favour of uh, the, the, the Republicans. Mm. We live in a republic. Um, but I, I thought it was very balanced and quite maturely handled, I have to say. I was, mm. I was refreshed. Obviously, there's still... You know, you're always going to get radical elements that still cause trouble every now and then now because mm. they you know are unhappy with um the how it was treated in some areas but no generally i thought it was good i, I was gave a couple of lectures in the usa about it and uh, it was quite nice to give them the yeah other, the other side of the story yeah. because they hadn't really heard it um you know either mm. and uh, it's mm. a lot more you know there's so many characters involved in the easter rising that were really larger-than-life people yeah. um, and that uh, were by no means fitting into any sort of small box of mm. you know, what it means to be a rebel. Yeah, yeah. I suppose what, what, what I would just... <clears throat> I think the whole thing that turned me off it, I watched this TV3 documentary on it and it was la- literally like uh, uh, Pat Kenny, who's like an Irish TV personality and he's like a, a kind of a journalist kind of person, but he basically gathered a lot of randomers around and asked if the 1916 Rising was right, and then they said, yes, it was, and that was, like, the conclusion. That was it. Like, okay. we found it. Like, we're, we're, turns out it is right kind of thing. Look, these people say so. So that was kind of, like, I was aghast after seeing that. So I think... Uh, and that wasn't even, like, that. obviously that doesn't represent the majority, but to me that just... I was so horrified, like, that they got, like, random... Like, why not academics together? Or why not people who are, like... Why not me? I, I would do it. I don't mind kind of thing. So, yeah, it's just, I think they're, I think they're, for me, I think I saw that and that kind of left a sour taste in my mouth. I think what will happen is in, in now, because yeah. the amount of stuff that was written by local historians, by yeah. academics, that now what needs to be done is somebody to gather all that new information. Mm. It's masses all about the women who are involved and, yeah. and people who had kind of been written out of it. And indeed mm. about all the, the British um, who died and the Irish who were in British uniform and all these different groups. 
Um, and I would say it'll take you about three or four years to read that. Yeah. And then you can do a, a 28 series podcast on that in, yeah. in 2024. Oh, I know, yeah. I already, like the 1916 Rising itself, it was like it was stressful enough because I was doing it for the centenary. And I think that was 20 parts in itself. Oh, goodness, but, uh, right, yes. Yeah, so, and that that was in the midst of all that content coming out so I didn't necessarily have the benefit of of being able to make use of it but maybe in the future I was pleasantly surprised I don't know about you but I I know I just said I can't tie myself down to a specific area of interest but if I'm maybe somewhat interested for example I'm unlikely to ever do a podcast on the American Civil War but if I was to investigate that the way my brain works it's like I become very interested almost obsessed <laughs> after a certain length of time that happened with 1916 and it'll probably happen with projects i do in the future like i'm toying with the idea of doing the second world war i don't know i suppose this is kind of an unusual question in a way but have you ever kind of by by default had to look into an, er- an area of history maybe it's a tangent or, or what have you but you didn't necessarily think that you'd be interested in it and it turns out to be like mind-blowingly interesting and, and you end up thinking to yourself wow i could i could run with this in so many other ways kind of thing yeah, I mean, I think I'm probably a little bit uh, fickler in my history in the sense that every book I've done is actually a compilation of short stories, really. Mm-hmm. Um, I did one called The Glorious Madness, which was tales of the First World War, mm-hmm. um, basically the Irish involvement. Um, but yes, as as in that is a very good example, because when I started the book, I didn't know a whole lot about the First World War. Mm. By the tail end, my chapters are getting longer yeah. and longer and longer. <laughs> yeah. um, and I you know, became uh, you know, absolutely fascinated with what was going on in Gallipoli and the Dardanelles mm. campaign and so on. Uh, and then you start, you know, again, reading memoirs of people. And yeah, it can go on forever. So yeah. yes, I think yeah. that absolutely happens. So you mentioned the 1580s earlier on. Would that be kind of Armada related in terms of your interest or...? Yeah, well, uh, and also it's the first Bunbury connection to Ireland with this guy called Thomas Bunbury. Ah. Um, who was, um, so as I, I think I said he, he was tied up to Lismore Castle, but the governor of Lismore Castle at that time was this extraordinary man called William Stanley. Mm. So William Stanley, um, not to be confused with another William Stanley, Lord Derby, who's doing the mm. rounds. <laughs> he, this William Stanley was a, a Catholic um, in Queen Elizabeth's army, which is kind of an unusual oh, okay. thing. Yeah, it is. And yeah. he was also Thomas Bunbury's half-brother. They shared a mum. Right. Um, and he had been extremely successful during the Munster campaign when they devastated Munster and, and annihilated the Earls of Desmond and all their Oh, yes, during the Nine Years' War kind of thing. No, this is 1580s, actually. Oh, 1580s. 15, oh, yes, yeah. 1570s, 1580s. Uh, when you've got all these people like Sir Walter Rawley, as yeah. I'm trying to call him, and mm. Sir Francis Drake and Humphrey Gilbert, and all these guys are doing the rounds. William Stanley, uh, as I say, he was, he was unusual because he was a Catholic, um, but that had its advantages. He was able to rally quite a lot of Irish guys okay. to fight in the in, in the Elizabethan army. Wow! And uh, he went up and down from the Wicklow Mountains all the way down the Blackwater into Kerry and, and did extremely well uh, from... You know, from his perspective. Yeah. Um, and then when they were parceling it up and they were divvying up, I can't remember what it was, but you know, basically Munster was divvied up between yeah. all the loyal henchmen who'd got it. Right. And also Walter Raleigh got uh, forty thousand acres, for example. Forty thousand acres. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so Stanley, you know, understandably, from Lismore, was sitting there waiting, thinking, mm, "Wonder what I'm going to get." Yeah. <laughs> and he got. Nothing. What? So he uh, was 
bit miffed by that. Yeah. In fact, he got posted to look after Deventer, which is um, in, in the Netherlands. Yes, yeah. He was made governor of this uh, fortress over there. Yawn. And he waited, <laughs> and he was like, God, blimey, this is not, you know, not yeah. good. And then eventually he lost his patience, and he, he swapped sides, and he handed oh. Deventer over to the Spanish. Right. Uh, on the eve of the Armada. Um, and subsequently found out that Queen Elizabeth and her Privy Council had met to discuss Ireland, and the Queen had recommended that Sir William Stanley be made Viceroy of Ireland. Oh, no! So that is... <laughs> there is a big lesson to be learned there. Yeah. Um, far too late for him. Yeah. he transferred, and he became an advisor to Philip uh, on the eve of the Armada. In fact, he advised that the Armada come in through Ireland. Okay. Rather than the route they took. Mm. Um, and he remained out there. He was in Holland, and he, he was... Uh, what do they call The Legion of Extraordinary... No, no, that's the Legion <laughs> Leave of Extraordinary Gentlemen. It was the British, a, a sort of British and Irish Catholic Legion oh, okay. that numbered Catesby and Guy Fawkes and all those guys in their right. ranks. Right, yeah. And he was sort of um, involved behind the scenes in the gunpowder plot and yeah. remained over there and was a recluse and died in uh, Ghent, I think, in 1621. Oh, but needless okay. to say, the Bunbury uh, kept his head down during all that time. Yeah, because suddenly your just... once influential cousin has disgraced himself. Yeah. Or, or half other has disgraced himself. Yeah. Huh, that's so very colourful times. Yeah, very much so. And like, how did you how did you go about finding out that kind of information? I mean, where where would you go to look for that kind of stuff? Well, I mean, there's, there's quite a, I mean, quite a lot of detail about, I mean, the Armada is sort of one of the really written about events yes, of all that's times. true, yeah. Um, and again, Guy Fawkes as well. So uh, that's where I found out about his latter-day stuff and then sort of pieced it together. I'd come across him, funny enough, and then, to my delight, worked out that he was a half-brother of uh, my ancestor. Oh, very good. Um, which uh, pinned him in, so... Yeah. And I love that time. That 1580s is when, you know, they're all those guys, nasty as they were in Ireland, Gilbert Raleigh <laughs> and Drake and so forth, but they're mm. also going out to the new world. And yes. Extraordinary exploration, yeah. which is... You know, it would be like people going off ast- as astronauts to yeah, Mars now. Yeah, I, um, I love the idea of that. I love the idea of there being like this mysterious new world. And I love hearing, like I love reading about what they thought they would find there. Like these giant monsters and like, po- like not even like pots of gold or anything like that. But even just like this mysterious land. And even similar with the scramble for Africa, which brings us into kind of Britain goes to war kind of era. But... The, the idea that at the middle of the unseen centre of Africa that there was this monster there and that there there was this empire or this almost Pandora's box that once it was opened it would just overtake the entire continent and the uh, the, the western powers would be kicked out. And I, I think references to that are really interesting because it's an almost, it's a supernatural view almost of things and the idea that, that, that back then, that, I mean I know it's not that recently but it's, when we think of that era we think of kind of Maybe we think of like no nonsense kind of stiff upper lip of like imperialism and that kind of thing. But the idea that there was this kind of scary Pandora's box at the center of it waiting to be opened, I thought was always fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. And all of it taking place after the US Civil War has resolved that we are all equal. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly <laughs> everything goes into a backslide there yeah. for um, big old Europe. Yeah, yeah. Well, another thing, I mean, the, the scramble for Africa itself... Africa went from very little interest from Europe to suddenly kind of overwhelmed by European colonies to the point that by the end of the 20th century, by the end of the 19th century, there was literally Ethiopia was like the only independent country. I just thought that that massive transition was just like, I mean, where has that happened anywhere else? It's 
I should think it's probably happening in Africa again right now, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yes. yeah I suppose so. Well, like, relating to the Scramble for Africa and that kind of era, you found, or you were pointed towards the the podcast Three Britain Goes to War with, with Gladstone and Disraeli. I mean, does that kind of political relationship have a kind of interest? Does that, is that interesting to you in, in a kind of uh, personal history sense? or um, <clears throat> It is. Um, I was uh, at a school in Scotland that was founded by Gladstone, so I've always, you know, had one eye on ah. him. Um, I think my, uh, well, I know my my ancestors were uh, of the opposite persuasion mm-hmm. to Gladstone. Mm. I, I'm quite a fan of Gladstone generally. I think he's quite, you know, really. Um, well, he obviously chopped and changed a bit, like all politicians. Yeah. But uh, no, my uh, family connection is through, well, in, in a way, is through um, a guy called John McClintock. Um, who was from County Louth in Ireland, mm. um, and his grandfather had been um, the sar- sorry, his father was Sergeant at Arms in in Grattan's Parliament in the seventeen nineties, right? And his grandfather was an MP for Belturbet um, and, and Enniskillen. Anyway, this younger John McClintock um, uh, was made um, a baron by Disraeli. Oh, I by, see. Um, Benjamin Disraeli during the eighteen during his very short ministry in eighteen sixty eight, when he had climbed to the top of the greasy greasy pole. pole yes, indeed. Um, so I was. Uh, that was all that era of Abdullahites and yeah. uh, the Reform Act and all that stuff. So you know, it was set against the backdrop of that, mm. and they basically had some vacancies. And in, in fact, it was after Lord Palmerston's death okay. that they had a, a vacancy for to create a new Irish peer. Right, and so they decided to change him to Lord Rathdonnell, and he became the first Lord Rathdonnell. And for better or worse, my father is the fifth Lord Rathdonnell. Oh, really? So oh, okay. Uh, uh-huh. Wow, wow. <laughs> Not a direct descendant, yeah. but uh, passed to a nephew and, and, and on down through that. Oh, very interesting, yeah. I mean, the what I found when I was looking up Britain Goes to War eventually, I think it's kind of, anyone who listens to this with any kind of sense of awareness will notice that I had an idea for it when I began it, and then I just kind of got... I don't think overwhelmed is the right idea, but kind of so interested in British politics in the late 19th century, which I never imagined I would like get interested in. But I think the Gladstone-Disraeli rivalry is just so fascinating. Do you think there's any kind of any like equivalence in history of the Gladstone-Disraeli? Do any come to mind or is it just kind of... One of those once in a, a million times. Oh, I'm sure. Rivalries. I'm sure there have been, but that one is just because it played out for so long. Yeah, like, lasted. How long did it last? Twenty years. A good twenty so, years. Yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, and I think there's quite a lot of color, and they're just clearly mm. so poles apart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's great, and I'm really looking forward to going back into it as well because we left them last. Left them in 1880. So, and unfortunately, Disraeli isn't long for this world. He he dies a good. Yeah, uh, Gladstone doesn't die until 1898. Same year as Bismarck, incidentally. So hmm. Hmm. interesting, yeah. So I think before we before we let you go, I think I'd just like to ask: Is there any kind of plans you have for for history going forward? Is there anything we should be aware of that you have in the pipeline? Well, I am going to keep going with all the aforementioned different <laughs> angles, uh, and I may have the occasional new angle. I'm um, exploring the possibility, as they might say, of writing. Uh, historical novel mm. uh, or novel which has a sort of historical subtext anyway, okay uh, which could be fun yeah that so, would be good yeah moving into that world i think very good very good and if people want to track you down where would be the best place to do that um they will find me through turtlebunbury.com mm. so turtle like the animal b-u-n for november b-u-r-y.com um, which is a website uh, where i put a lot of my historical ramblings on cool um or facebook mm. twitter 
those two really. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, and one final question: Would you like some merchandise? <laughs> You're very kind, Zach. Thank you very much. I have a bag of it right here that I'll give you as soon as it's finished up. But I just want to say a huge thanks for uh, huge thanks for coming on and for celebrating this fifth birthday of the podcast with me. Thanks a lot. Congratulations. Thank right. you. Thank you, Zach. Okay, what did we think of that? He's not too scary at all, is he? I don't know why I was nervous in the first place. Hey, we did well, I think. That was my first... I think that was my first one-on-one interview with someone who was not Sean, really. And, like, in person, I mean. So, yeah, I think it went very well. And those are the kinds of things that will really help me stretch as a podcaster. Not just as a podcaster, but as a historian who, in the future, I would like to think, would be able to do more of these interviews with people who I wouldn't necessarily know all that well. I was delighted with how it went overall, and yes, I did have to make that joke about turtles coming out of their shells and all that kind of thing. I know it sounded awkward in the actual episode, and I debated getting rid of that, but that's the kind of guy I am. I make terrible puns when I'm nervous, and hey, even though he didn't laugh hysterically like I did, because I'm the one who laughs at my puns, I mean, who else will? He did smile, and that was enough for me, so because I knew he didn't hate it, I kept that in there. But yeah, so yeah, Turtle Bunbury, he's a great guy. And remember, you can let him know what you thought of this. And you can also support him in his work, because he is making history thrive just as much as I am trying to. So go to turtlebunbury.com. Even follow him on Twitter. Tweet him, at turtlebunbury, and let him know what you thought of this guest appearance on When Diplomacy Fails. We really appreciated him. I really appreciated him. And I'm sure that my downloads will appreciate him too, because this is hopefully the first of many renowned historians that will appear in the When Diplomacy Fells podcast feed. But until that happens, this has been the Turtle Bunbury Collaboration. My name is Zach, and you're listening to When Diplomacy Fails, because we are running wild. There'll be more episodes to come. Way more episodes to come. So stay tuned. Thanks for listening, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. I'll be talking to you all very soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.